0: Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome. My name's Akash Pound. Thank you for watching this Institute for Government event in conversation with Andy Burnham, the Mayor of Greater Manchester. This is the third in our Elections 2021 event series, as part of which we're speaking with senior political figures, from across the country in advance of the devolved and local elections that will be taking place on Thursday, the 6th of May. And among the posts up for election on that day are the so-called metro mayors of seven um, city regions across England, including Greater Manchester, where our guest today, Andy Burnham, is seeking a second term in office, having been elected in the first set of elections for those posts back in 2017. Um, for those unfamiliar with the term, metro mayors are directly elected leaders who hold responsibility for certain um, sometimes quite difficult to to define budgets, strategies, public services across a region that incorporates a number of different local council areas. And in the case of Greater Manchester, there are 10 council areas within the wider metro region that um, that Andy Burnham represents. And the leaders of those 10 councils sit on a combined authority that is uh, chaired by the mayor. And together, the mayor and combined authority hold uh, powers often in partnership with central government in policy areas, including transport, housing and planning, health, justice, welfare and more. So we are really pleased to, to have the opportunity to talk through um, Andy Burnham's experience as mayor in trying to make a difference in in some of those big policy areas over the past four years. Uh, Before becoming mayor, Andy was MP for Lee in the Greater Manchester region. Um, He held ministerial office in several different departments, including in Cabinet as Secretary of State for Culture and then for Health. He also served in the Shadow Cabinet after 2010. Um, He's a lifelong fan of... Everton Football Club, but the good people of Greater Manchester don't appear to hold that against him too much, um, as far as I'm aware. Um, so I'm really pleased to to have you with us, Andy. Um, thanks very much for for taking the time to uh, speak with us.
1: Oh, you're welcome, Asha. Akash. It's great to be able to look ahead um, to these elections, these mayoral elections with you, because I think they are are important when it comes to uh, the UK the UK going forward, and it's an opportunity, of course, to reflect on what's working with English Devolution and perhaps where it needs to go from here. But uh, really great to join you this afternoon.
0: Great. So, uh, yeah, so we have uh, about half an hour, well, just under now, uh, for the conversation. Um, I'll be putting a series of questions to to Andy, but if you uh, in the live audience would like to submit a question, then you can do that using the QA function on Microsoft Teams. Um, and you can also like questions proposed by others um, if you think they are particularly worthy of consideration. So um, let's get straight into it. Um, so Andy, you've been in post for Coming up to four years now, um, what have been the highlights of your uh, period in office so far?
1: So, yes, uh, four years, um, Akash. And I think the highlight for me is the liberation of working uh, in, in this way uh, and not being part of the, the Westminster system, which, if I'm honest, I increasingly, increasingly fell out of love with Um I I mean there's so much more I can say about that I I think the difference between that and what I'm doing now is the way you can sort of start from the bottom and build up uh, from the bottom and make change happen sort of with people rather than imposing it on people it's such a different way of working and it's actually more empowering Um, and the highlights you asked me to, to touch on if I pick out one or two I made a commitment around homelessness when I stood for election in 2017 and I wasn't sure that I could pull off what what we have, in fact, done, which is to oversee a massive reduction in the number of people sleeping rough. And the reason why it's a highlight is because it really has been a whole system approach. All public services kind of buying into the idea of getting a reduction. And I think, you know, it is an example of how you can make change happen uh, by asking public services to to prioritise the issue, number one, but to work in a very different way. And I, I could probably say say a little more about that. But just on a, a simple level, I promised young people a free bus pass and there are now 70,000 uh, 16 to 18-year-olds in Greater Manchester wandering around with a little piece of plastic in their pocket, which I like to think of a, as a passport to opportunities that they wouldn't have had um, had I not been in imposed. So those are those are highlights. I'm, I, I, increasingly in my political career, I just became more and more interested in making real change and becoming less and less uh, interested in the point-scoring side of of politics. Um, And I think sometimes in Westminster, the point-scoring takes over everything and uh, you can lose sight of what it's all about when you're just trapped in that very, you know, sort of adversarial uh, system. So Mm -hmm. I'm quite liberated doing what I'm doing. Um, I think it is connecting politics maybe to people a bit better, um and i i do see it as part of civic and political renewal the whole drive towards devolution in england and i really hope it's just at the end of the beginning not not uh, not at the beginning of the end
0: <laughs> yeah, well, the homelessness example is is an interesting one, and and I know that's um, been a big priority of yours in the way that you you describe. But it's interesting because it's not an area where, when the devolution deals were initially done and the post was 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 created, where it was seen that that would be a, a function of the mayor. Um, and I mean, my my understanding of it is that, you know, most of the levers to um, actually deal with the problem of homelessness in Greater Manchester sit elsewhere, wh- wh- whether with the councils or with central government or, you know, you've worked with, with private sector providers and so on as well. So what's been the distinct role that, that you have played to, to make a dif- difference in that area, which I guess gets at the point of like, w- what is the purpose of, of the role of metro mayor within this quite um complicated landscape of of you know agencies and government departments and and local bodies as well
1: yes you're right it wasn't technically uh, within my list of of uh, of competencies and there are two ways you could go about this job i think some mayors do stick more strictly if you like to the um uh, to the areas where they 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 have defined uh d- defined role I, I've taken the view that this will only succeed. This this is still an experiment of devolution in England, if it really adds value and can speak to all of the things that people are are worried about, and also uses the convening power of the mayor. Now, you know, this is the bit that really shouldn't be underestimated. I think it is it's huge to have one person within a city region like Greater Manchester who is able to bring people uh, together, and Certainly, in a city region like ours, you know, agree a common mission about something that matters to people. And homelessness was absolutely right up there uh, when we stood for the first uh, first mayoral uh, elections in 2017. So, what what have I been able to do about it? I do chair something called the Greater Manchester Reform Board, which is a unique body, I think, in English uh, public uh, service, in that it brings together all of the all of the um, local and national bodies that are working within Greater Manchester, together with the voluntary and community sector. So the Reform Board is a a forum which I chair. It isn't a statutory body, but it allows one conversation to take place over issues that are of, of concern. And I had identified rough sleeping early on. And it's amazing, actually, what's happened. As I was saying, you know, the extent to which... Greater Manchester Police and our NHS have, have bought into the mission and some of the, the changes they've made as a result. You yeah, know, really inspiring stuff. But we've also kind of used that to mobilise a wider fundraising uh, initiative. You may remember that the former captain of Manchester City Football Club, Vincent Company, um, d- dedicated his testimonial year to it. And, you know, once you do something like that, it's amazing what more happens and, you know, how, how you start to make it more than the sum of its parts. Yeah, uh, and that certainly I think is what happened with homelessness. Yeah, uh, in Greater Manchester, and the mayor can play a massive role in bringing people together, galvanising people, lifting their level of ambition. So the convening power of the role really shouldn't be underestimated.
0: Yeah. Okay. No, that, that's that's very interesting, and this gets at this question of soft power versus hard power, and and we'll come on in a few minutes to um, the question of 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 whether you think um, more formal powers. Uh, should be devolved now, or how far you can get with the with the powers you already have. But before we get onto that, I also just wanted to ask the well, the op- opposite of of my first question, really, which is um, we have talked about the highlights. But but what are the what are the mistakes you think you've made? I mean, are there episodes you look back on now and think, oh, I really wish I'd I'd handled that differently? Um, I, I I guess
1: the, the, in some ways the expectations that people have of the role are you know because I haven't sold people a sort of reduced version of it if you know what I mean I, I did put a very expansive manifesto forward at the outset I guess I built expectations um that, that have been challenging to deliver I don't think I've ever worked harder if I'm honest with you than in my last in my last uh, four years and when you are I suppose out there on different things you almost become responsible for things that you're not responsible for, if that makes sense. You know, if anything goes wrong in Greater Manchester now, people will hit my Twitter timeline and blame me for, for it. Or you know, So I guess, you know, would I have done it slightly differently going forward and being clearer about what I was responsible for and what I'm not? It's a difficult one because, you know, if we'd had too much a boiled down version of, of devolution, I'm not sure people would have bought into it. Mm-hmm. I think what people have bought into is the idea that Greater Manchester can make changes for itself um, that, that deviate from national policy. And people like that. You know, they want more of that, if anything. Yeah. So I guess looking back, you know, particularly transport, I think has been the biggest challenge where I'm only responsible for a really small part of the system, the tram system. You know, the buses are deregulated, the trains, um, you know, privatised, um, you know, it's a very fragmented system when you look at transport outside of London and the other English cities. And the extent to which I mean the one thing that I did provide when I came into office was people had one person to complain to about this underperforming transport system. So in some ways it's kind of, you know, given a focal point uh within the system. But it's it's challenging then to given the very fragmented nature of us uh, of transport to actually get it to move in the direction that you want it to move. right in.
0: yeah because i know you've on transport specifically sorry just to i wanted to, right. to, to ask about this so i know you've through transport for greater manchester have, have published um ambitious uh, strategy document setting out a vision for much more integrated public transport system, you know, net carbon emissions and all that kind of thing by by 2040, um, which, you know, looks and sounds great. and And I can see why it would excite a lot of people. But I guess what you're saying is when it comes down to it, you don't, at least at present, really have all the necessary powers and resources to make that happen. So does that mean on that kind of subject, your role is more to to build the, the coalition of support behind it and then to lobby the centre uh, for when it comes down to it, the, the money to pay for the things you'd like to see happen?
1: It's certainly quite a lot of that. I think English cities outside of London are nowhere near punching their weight at the moment. Um, and I think transport is an obvious example of how they don't, you know, pull their weight. It's, very fragmented, poor quality offer, um, and you know most unlike what you find in most of the European cities when, when you go there. So doing something about transport, I think, is, is mission critical for a city like uh, Greater Manchester. And actually, we did argue, uh, as part of the original devolution deal with George Osborne, for greater power to control the transport system. So we um, have the Bus Services Act 2017, an Act of Parliament, which... Uh, was the price um, George Osborne's price of a devolution deal was that he wanted a mayor, uh, which the other ten leaders te- repeatedly uh, tell me that they weren't massively keen on at the time. And their price uh, back to George Osborne was um, the ability to, um, to 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 take control of, of buses. Um, yeah. And you know I think it's um, uh, often often remarked that the only reason that they um, they tolerate my presence is because they wanted the Bus Services Act 2017 to create some options over reform of buses. So uh, that's the only only reason they put up with the mayor. Um, yeah. So Greater Manchester did win powers to kind of reform um, its bus system. In the original devolution deal, there was reference to us taking control of our train stations. Um, and and we have recently actually just taken control of our first Horwich Parkway station. So the, the vision is to take, more control of the system if you like to make it more like a london style system um you know now we, whether we do that through an enhanced partnership uh, that is proposed by the bus services act or a, or a franchising system we're about to make a decision on that so that's not not finalized at the moment but transport in grace Manchester is going to change yeah and i would say i've got sort of some but not all of the powers i need to make sure that that is successful so it will require further lobbying of Of central government as well. Yeah,
0: and so in terms of in terms of that relationship with central central government, then I mean we saw the budget, of course, um, just last week, and um, that seemed to include quite quite a lot of uh, announcements and different uh, funding streams to support regions such as Greater Manchester. There's a levelling up fund, a towns fund, a community renewal fund. There's going to be a shared prosperity fund, you know, the, and the, the numbers are are in the billions uh, when you add them all together, at least for England as a whole. Um, but, but what was your overall take on the budget? I mean, was that not a good news budget for Greater Manchester, uh, given all those announcements, or, or, or are you overall um sceptical of the government's approach mm. um
1: i think I, I i um described it as a packet of polo's budget refreshing but full of holes uh, is you know refreshing in some ways uh, and it was with some of the things that that um uh, that, that were put forward but actually i mean i i saw a lot missing in in, in the budget and i what i see as missing is a, is a commitment to true devolution which The government began by promising when it was talking about levelling up, but seems to be going. And they're moving back towards very traditional Whitehall bidding rounds, um, which, you know, I find infuriating, if I'm honest. It's the tyranny of bidding, the bidding culture, you know, areas putting forward bids, the, the time that goes into this. Devolved funding is what we need. You know, when we have devolved capital funding, we can make quicker decisions and we can make quicker progress on, on levelling up. And I think we need to get back to that uh, as, as a guiding principle. I think the danger with the way the government are going is it feels like it's being scattered now to favoured places, you know, a bit of funding here and for whatever reason that you're plucking out this town, but not that one. And I don't think that will create the conditions in which levelling up will succeed, because it's quite divisive, number one, because um, it's, you know, one win- winners and losers, um and i think leveling up needs to sort of keep a sense of it being about everybody and everywhere that's that's that will help it if that's what what it's about but secondly you lose the ability to make more strategic investment decisions in that context when it's a bidding round you know the bigger infrastructure pieces that will actually level up the north of england uh seem to be sort of being pushed to the side and it's the sort of you know very typically Whitehall controlled process that I don't personally believe you can level up top down. I think the only way you level up is giving more power to places to to, to make more decisions for themselves., yeah. uh, and I think that's
0: increasingly missing from the government's narrative now. So what specific reforms would you like to see then in terms of in terms of how the, the, well, your, you and the, the combined authority are, are funded from the centre what, what, What's your ideal model for that?
1: It's more long term devolved funding. You know the shared prosperity fund that we were promised, you know, which was a replacement for European funds, should have been constructed on that basis, and yet it's it too seems to be going down a, uh, you know, a, a bidding uh, path. I, I just think, from my experience, devolution will will return maximum dividends once it, it can be done with true buy-in at a local level, where people are setting their own priorities at a local a local level, where there is trust um in places to 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 do that um, for me you get most back from devolution the more you buy into it you know half-hearted versions of it i don't think i personally don't think work um, I, I think the greatest returns come when you completely buy into the place-based approach what we've shown i think in greater manchester is you can break down the silos between different public services you can as i said before create one conversation about big priorities across the city region. If you take the green agenda, I think the country is going to need the big cities to move faster on zero carbon mm. if it's to be likely that the UK as a whole will hit 2050. You, you aren't going to get to that by top-down intervention. You just won't. You, you won't hit it. You're going to have to combine backstop legislation or the things everybody must do with freeing up those who want to move fastest and be the earliest uh, adopters, you know that that is the way this is going to have to work. You know, kind of y- yes, fallback positions legislated, but actually freeing up those who want to to be the, um, the 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 early adopters. And I think we're in danger of missing that 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 side of it. If the UK PLC is going to recover from this. We need to be firing on all cylinders coming out of the pandemic, using every bit of capacity in the system, in local government, regional government, national government. My worry is during this last year, we've gone back to a sort of mentality that the centre knows everything, the centre can run everything. And as as we've discovered, it can't, actually.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, you've, I mean, you, you, as mentioned in the introduction, have been a minister in the centre. I mean, can you appreciate why ministers and, and vital departments might be reluctant to to, to, to let go of uh, control of, of of some of these funds and and policy areas if they feel for example that they're still going to get blamed when when things go wrong well I don't know I just think it's a very
1: territorial thing I think that nobody Whitehall doesn't like necessarily giving up power um, there's a there's a degree of arrogance there that whitehall always does things better than everyone else but I would say if you take an issue like technical education, that's clearly not true. It's never run it properly. It's never come up with a good solution for uh, vocational and technical education. So mm-hmm. the argument for Whitehall just keeping the status quo uh, really doesn't work to me. And if you ask me the difference between my old job and my new job. So the way I describe it is is this, you know, is it, as a cabinet minister, particularly as health secretary, when you're looking with a telescope out from your department at the rest of the country, You can see numbers, but not names. As mayor of Greater Manchester, I can see names, not numbers, if you know what I mean, in that I'm closer to the ground. And you can kind of work on a whole person, whole family, whole community approach to policy in a way that you simply cannot do in Whitehall. You can join the dots between the different government silos and you can actually make services much more effective uh, for for people. And I think if Whitehall learned to let go of it, it would realise that a place-based approach, rather than a silo-based approach, would actually end up delivering better results for the public and would spend public money much more efficiently than we currently
0: currently do. Okay, great. Okay, so uh, I'm I'm conscious of time, and we've got loads of really good questions coming in. So I want to throw in a couple of uh, a cu- couple of questions from the audience, building on what we were just talking about. Actually, so um, first of all. Um, There's a question from Holly Day, which I'm not convinced is is whether that's a real name or not, but Mm -hmm. never mind. (laughs) So it's possible. Anyway, uh, thanks for the question. Question being, uh, what are you expecting from the government's long anticipated devolution white paper? Um, which yeah has been has been promised and delayed a number of times. And I think I'll combine that with a question from Robert Moreland, which is do you believe from your experience that the mail system such as yours should cover all of the country and or should there be a system of, of of regional government so in other words yeah what, what should the government's what are you expecting from the government's white paper if that ever emerges and should we be looking towards a much more sort of uniform approach to devolution across england
1: yeah i'm, I'm becoming less optimistic about it holly if I'm, if I'm honest um there seems to be a move away from it and just just because i sort of stood up to the government and you know stood up for great manchester l- last year it would be very disappointing if Whitehall thinks, well, we're not having people doing that, therefore we're pulling back on devolution. You know, we've got to have a more mature relationship between central government and local uh, and local government, a, a, a greater balance between those two things. So I hope it's not the end of the, of the commitment. Um, I would like to see control over post-16 education, as I was just saying. I think there is much more evidence that if you link it to local economies, you can build a more successful skills system. I would like greater control over the DWP budget. Again, I think we're proving we can uh, spend that better when we do it in a more bottom-up approach. We, we have twice the success rate in getting people into work through the work programme than the traditional uh, top-down uh, approach. Um, more power over transport, I think, would, would, would absolutely help English cities punch their weight uh and be more like cities that we see around around the world Mm -hmm. yes robert i think it was who asked the second question we need to fill in this map and the thing about this this is this devolution that i'm working with is different to devolution to wales scotland northern ireland that is top-down devolution this devolution is different where you've got 10 councils as akash said at the start part of a combined authority that is really building from the bottom up and it's better than the London model, actually, where the GLA isn't connected to the councils, whereas the GMCA is the councils. So if we agree on something in Greater Manchester, the whole of the system can move in that direction. And that's why it's a powerful, a powerful system. And personally, I think in the 21st century, change is more likely to be driven bottom-up rather than top-down. I think top-down approach to, to running things is a 20th century kind of old-fashioned state model. I think when we look at the... Um, the challenge around decarbonisation, digitalisation, whatever you look at as, as the sort of big 20, 21st century issue, it's more likely to succeed driven bottom up, I think. Um, and I think the form of devolution we have in Greater Manchester allows that to happen. UK PLC, I think, would be wise to free up its regions, its big cities, to allow them to be big more than they currently are when it comes to the um, uh, to, to, to the impact they make on the world stage. We're so London dominated at the moment. And I think we are we are missing a very big trick in not empowering our cities to
0: be, to be more than they are. OK. And um, another question just wanted to put to you. So this is from Vernon Bogdanor uh, and it's specifically about health and social care uh, devolution, where, which is an area where Greater Manchester has 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 devolved control of a, of a big budget. Um, in a way that doesn't apply to most of the other city regions so the question is does this work well in the case of Manchester and is this a model that could be applied easily to to the rest of the country? I think I wouldn't want to
1: overclaim, Vernon but I think it does work well in that we are seeing moves towards a much more integrated not just health and social care system but the health service more integrated with with wider public services. And the example I gave before on homelessness is valid because I said to the health service when I came into, into to office that it needed to take a responsibility on this issue because you know, it, it spends a lot of money on smoking or obesity. But when we look at rough sleeping, there are people whose health is visibly deteriorating in front of our eyes. And yet the health service traditionally has not seen that as an issue for, for health. And to be fair to them, they originally resisted, but then said, okay, we accept it and came on board. And I think the health service can be a driver for change in a much bigger, much bigger canvas than when it just remains as a sort of treatment service. I think the, the lesson of the pandemic is that health is built or isn't built in people's homes, in people's workplaces, uh, in people's communities, and the health service needs to start working with other public services to to do that, to build health and resilience in all of those in all of those places, and and think differently about how health is created Um, and I I think the health services if it stays in its current model is kind of trapped in a treatment model which is again a very 20th century notion it needs to break out of that working with other public services into a health promotion service and um, I think we've got emerging evidence in Greater Manchester that our model allows that to happen
0: okay great all right well the clock is ticking one final question uh changing the subject somewhat uh to national politics so um i mean you stood um for to become leader of the labor party before you you got this new job and it sounds like you're you're maybe happy that <laughs> you ended up where you are but my question is um why do you think labor is still so far behind in recent opinion polls and uh what do you think, uh, Sir Keir Storm, as leader of Labour, should do differently to try and close that gap?
1: I think it's it's been an exceptionally difficult time for Keir to, to take over as leader coming into a, a national uh, crisis. Um, you know, I think it's going to be hard for a leader of opposition, you know, to, to do right from doing wrong. People would say if he was too challenging that that wasn't right at this moment in time. Or not challenging enough. Others will say the same. So it's kind of hard to find the right balance. But I think he has uh, found the right balance. Um, there's a lot of rebuilding, uh, rebuilding to do. Um, but I, I mean, I think Labour, in my view, is uh, making a mistake by not more enthusiastically embracing devolution. You know, I think all political parties have got to get themselves out of the mindset that Westminster is the be-all and end-all. You know, Labour's got this mindset that we wait four or five years and then we try everything on a Westminster election, and it, I don't think that's the way t- we're going to sort of succeed. Um, I think we need to get better at building from the bottom, from the bottom up, and uh, rethinking politics. I, I think we've got to break out of some of the stale, old, tribal, point-scoring ways of Westminster politics, uh, and I, I don't think L- yet Labour yet has put you know forward a vision for how it can kind of reconnect at that sort of very um uh very bottom-up sort of level so um i think care's made all the right first moves but i think it's an exceptionally challenging time but i think labor really does now need to, to to rethink some of the ways it works um and it needs almost to define leveling up itself and take mm. it off the government i think the government is going wrong with leveling up now it is becoming quite a divisive sort of partial agenda leveling up to me starts with people rather than infrastructure uh, and certainly after the pandemic it should all be about um, you know starting with the poorest people in the poorest places and building a vision for how they can be truly uh, uh, lifted up from where they from where they are um, and then we use we devolve more power to those places to do more for themselves you know i, I think we're still a bit stuck in the in the sort of um, um Westminster centric mindset if I'm honest, the
0: Labour Party and it needs
1: to break out of it.
0: Okay. Great. Thanks very much. So we are at 245. There are a lot more questions. But Andy, I do do you do you need to uh call this to a close at this no, point? No, i will can carry on for a little longer if that if that helps, I think. Okay, sorry sorry to like <laughs> that a to you. But, yeah, very grateful. Uh I'm just uh keen to to bring in some more uh members of the audience. So um Okay, so what where is that question? So there was a question then from um, someone called S Lyons about the uh, spatial framework for Manchester. So this is your plan for where to build housing and other infrastructure over the coming years. It's an area where there's been disagreement, I know, with some of the local councils and um, one of the 10, namely Stockport, I believe, voted to reject uh, the the spatial framework. Um, And as a result, it can't go forward in in the original version because you need unanimity. Um, So, um, I mean, the original question was, are you excited about the spatial framework and how that will change the face of Manchester? But I guess my supplementary is, um, well, what what went wrong? Why could you not get the full uh, unanimity across the 10 councils?
1: It is going forward as a plan of nine councils, so um, it's not completely derailed. Um, you know, it is still moving forward as a as a as a strategic uh, plan. What went wrong? I, I think local politics, I'm afraid, <laughs> intervened, um, particularly with uh, you know a may election on the horizon. I, Stockport is a you know is always a, a quite borderline uh, council. Um, there isn't an overall control situation and i just think that that basically local politics intruded on it unfortunately um the thing about the spatial framework was it actually benefited stockport in that it allowed it to build below its housing need because manchester and salford were building above and the redistributive side of it i don't if i'm honest i don't think we ever communicated as well as we as uh, 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 as we as we should but i am excited about it to answer the question i'm actually excited about what's happening in stockport i don't know if um uh, this is well understood, but Stockport has the first mayoral development corporation in the country that's focused on a town centre. It's chaired by Lord Kerslake. And we're looking at building three thousand five hundred new homes in town centre Stockport under the famous uh, railway arches. Um, and and I, I believe this will be a model of town centre regeneration that in the end will surpass anything achieved by the towns fund or the levelling up fund because it's a, a, very strategic, coordinated master plan um, linked to, uh, reformed public transport, uh, better cycling and walking infrastructure. I, I've got really high hopes actually for what we will achieve uh, in, in Stockport. It's obviously based on a you know, a urban renewal brownfield uh, preference uh, approach, and you know I think. What it will do is it will end up building more affordable homes higher density homes linked to public transport you know taking away redundant retail economic uh, capacity i think this is what needs to happen to towns across the country we need to replace retail with residential and rethink them as places where people want to live uh, and i'm really excited about what is actually emerging in, in stockport even though they pulled away from the plan overall the Stockport Mayoral Development Corporation is, I think, going to set a template uh, for town centre regeneration across the country.
0: OK, great. All right. Uh, a couple more, if we may. Thanks very much for your time. Uh, so this is a question on the you know, on the Q&A from someone who is anonymous. Um which is about about Whitehall, so quite a good sort of IFG question. Um, how can Whitehall become more representative? so is the answer jobs and departments moving out of London, or is it people from different backgrounds moving in? and um, I think I'll link that back to we were talking a bit about the budget before, and one of the interesting announcements in the budget was that um, a good chunk of treasury staff would be relocated to the north of england but specifically to to darlington um so i wonder if you have any observations about that particular um announcement as well
1: yeah i think it's a bit of both isn't it i think it's about um opening up clearer pathways for young people from all parts of the country to work uh, in the civil service Um, but also certainly about taking uh, government departments out. And the example I want to point to, Akash, is GCHQ. Mm. So they have recently moved uh, to Manchester explicitly for its diversity and for our uh, ability to feed them with a talent pipeline that comes from places that they can't reach from Cheltenham uh, and perspectives and... uh, uh, you know backgrounds, and, and I think it's to their great credit, they are really working hard to build connections with schools and to excite people about cyber and tech, um, because they recognise, rightly in my view, that to be a world-class intelligence and security service in, in this uh, century, you need to employ people from all walks of life and therefore have all perspectives on life within the organisation. And I do contrast GCHQ's move to Manchester with the BBC's move to Salford a decade ago, which I oversaw as as Culture Secretary, to say it was a little grudging uh, when the BBC came would be a, a bit of an understatement actually yeah. and it was very much the BBC was relocating all of the people, whereas GCHQ have come in a much more, I would say enthusiastic way about taking advantage of greater Manchester talent and I think they are a real example for Whitehall to look at. I would, I would implore every Whitehall department to look at what GCHQ have done. I think it's bold, I think it's right, um, and it certainly I think will um, will improve never mind Manchester, it will improve GCHQ going forward. Yeah. Actually, as the BBC was improved by the move to Salford, if the BBC had not done that, there wouldn't be the same at- level range of accents on the airwaves now. And I think B- the BBC would be perceived as more ivory tower than it currently is. I think it is the move to Salford has. Opened up the BBC to more yeah. to more people. So I should learn from this, is what you're saying. I think it gives organisations greater legitimacy. When you are a national organisation, you need to be of the whole country. Yeah, and you know, I think there are real lessons from what GCHQ have done.
0: Okay, and what and and what did you think about Darlington being chosen as the location for Treasury North? Was that do you think based on a a solid sort of assessment of the economic benefits or? You know, was this to some extent helping um, your Metro Mayor counterpart, Ben Houchen, Conservative Mayor of Tees Valley, with his re-election campaign? Mm. God, that's a good question.
1: <laughs> I don't know. If, I mean, I, I would. I don't have the evidence to say that it was a political uh, move. I, I think it's a surprise that an organisation like the Treasury is not, if we're honest, in the city centre. Uh, not saying it would have be been Manchester, but Leeds or Newcastle um and, and i the danger for me is sometimes when organizations you know go to places that haven't got that wider infrastructure around it makes you wonder whether the move will be successful i hope it is i really and i'm absolutely delighted for darlington but i i think it would have been more likely to to succeed had it gone to newcastle or say leeds or or even durham i, I don't know but you know that 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 would have been uh, more uh, more likely because what i think happens is that you get a clustering effect don't you and G- certainly we're seeing that with gchq at the moment we're seeing cyber organizations coming in around and obviously we've got an infrastructure that can sustain a cluster whether you can do that in a smaller town i i, I don't know so i'm not sure that it will have the impact that it could have had had the treasury moved to you know a, a different northern northern city so you know, I, I think we have we've got to be careful with these things. They can be done in the right way, done in the wrong way. They can set the whole notion. They can set the whole notion back. Um, and yeah. I, I, would, I would be honest and say I was surprised at the, the
0: choice of location. OK, thanks very much. All right. Very final one, I promise. Keith MacDonald, the very first person to suggest a question. So I feel it's only right to, to, to put that to you. What would be the effect on the north of England if Scotland left the UK?
1: Hmm. Oh, I think it would. Um, it would be very damaging. I think you know because you know the the north of England actually probably has more affinity with Scotland on some issues than than it does with uh, other parts of of England. And there are you know well well the long established uh, you know relationships. I think it would create a sense of dislocation for the north if it happened. Um. The only way of looking at, of course, it it probably would make Whitehall reassess things with regard to its plan for the North. Um, When I was Chief Secretary of the Treasury, Joel Barnett, he of the Barnett formula, came to see me, pleading with me to scrap the Barnett formula. Ah. And I, I have said before that it's the first time a politician, in my experience, has ever asked for something that carries... His or her name to be scrapped it's a, it's a very unique thing uh, but he came to me and said very explicitly the Barnett formula was unfair to the north of england um because of the way it skews funding around the uk and you know english spending is carefully concentrated in london and and i and i think that is that is a problem and i think if if scotland left the uk i think the the issue about the north and the investment in the north would, would, I think, become very much into the into the spotlight. You might say it might force um, the Treasury to seriously rethink how it how it distributes funding across England. Um, but I think that might be a benefit. But I think we would lose more in terms of the the, the, the fracturing of relationships. Mm. You know, I think it would lead to a sense of dislocation in in, in the wider the wider north. Um, so I really really hope it doesn't you know it doesn't happen um but um you know obviously we're in we're in uh, challenging times aren't we in terms of you know i think the best answer i you know I, my my appeal would be to for the country to back what gordon brown is saying and that's to move to a more federal uh uk where you know the english regions uh, alongside uh, scotland wales northern ireland have a much greater degree of, of power but i would also ask the welsh government and the scottish government to consider devolving more power within their own within their own countries as well uh, to, to create the conditions where, let's say, the North West could work more with North Wales on a devolved basis. I think that will create a healthier uh, approach to politics all over the country. What I fa- I'll finish on this point, Akash. What I have found leaving Westminster is, yeah, Westminster puts politics first, place second. When you leave there and come into the role that I'm in, where it's place first, it's, it's by definition a unifying force. It brings people together from wherever they're coming from. And it's a much healthier starting point for conversations about politics, about change. You know, if you've, you place is a unifying factor. And I think, you know, British politics would, would, would be in a better position if there was more devolved power at regional level, not just in England, but across all of the UK. And it would allow more places to work collaboratively with each other, even over borders and um, you know, it becomes more about people and communities and places, less about the things that divide us on on big picture political lines. So I don't know whether the future of these islands is bound up with a with a vision of that kind, but I, I sincerely hope that it that it is, because I think we've 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 come to a pretty poor place really, where we are very very divided. If you look across the UK as as a, as a whole, uh, levelling up is actually the right thing. The government's hit on the right theme. My, you know, it would be such a shame now if it if it turns into a divisive fight. You know, I, I just hope that we can get it back on track, and I hope the devolution white paper can be true to its uh, true to what it originally promised. But thank you for your questions this afternoon. Brilliant. Thanks for uh, everybody tuning in. I've enjoyed yeah. it. Thank you. Okay. Well, thanks.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for your time and for for sticking around longer than planned. Um Quick commercial. Uh, break. You mentioned the Barnet Formula. The Institute for Government has a new report out on the Barnet Formula oh, really? which <laughs> which concludes um, that the north of England and other poorer areas like the Midlands are under um, underfunded, and that Scotland and, north, and in particular Scotland does uh, disproportionately well out of the distribution of funding so definitely in favour of, of reform there. Um, so all that remains for me to say is Yeah, once again, thank you, Andy. Thank you, everyone else, for tuning in. Apologies to Holly Day for doubting your identity. I see on the chat that that is your name, so (laughs) I do apologise for that. Um, There will be more devolution events and content coming out over the next couple of months. Um, Hope you join us all. uh, You will join us again. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events.